you ever feel that God is invisible? That he is absent from the world? That he might not be active right now? Do you ever wonder how we should act in a world where others seem more powerful? Where governments seem to be in total control? Where God's people get sidelined? Did you know there's a Bible book all about that? Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be sharing my sermon series from the book of Esther. Esther's a book where God's name doesn't even come up once. But when we look carefully, God is extremely active. It's a book with conspiracies, uh, misuse of power, supposed coincidences, relationships and far more. Are you intrigued? Well, let's dive in, shall we? Esther chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. On the 13th day, the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshahantha, Dalphon, Aspatha, uh, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashatta, Arisai, Aridai, Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the 10 sons of Haman The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Well, in 2013, Universal Pictures released a chilling movie called The Purge. The premise, a single day when all criminal activity, specifically including murder, was legalised by the government. One day, 
of anarchy. Now, while I haven't watched that movie, and I don't recommend that you do, it's really intriguing to note the striking similarity with the story of Esther. Today, we categorise The Purge as a horror film, and we mark it with an 18-plus rating due to how terrifying the concept is. But here in Esther chapter 9, this is reality. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, an attempted purge is coming on God's people. Do you remember last time? We saw a second decree go out, one that was going to stand next to an already existing decree. They had to choose either for God's people or against God's people. Both decrees both stood at the same time. And people have to pick a side. And picking a side, it might seem a risky move. You don't know how many people are going to be on either side. Uh, you don't know what the local officers are going to do. You don't even know what your neighbour is going to do until the day comes. And the same goes today. I was talking to someone about standing for God in the workplace this month. And they said this, I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, I feel like I'm on my own amidst a sea of people who seem to be on the other side. I don't know what my colleagues really think. I don't know what my boss thinks. And I don't know what's going to happen to me if I make a stand. We can sympathise with that, can't we? It's risky to take a side. But what is it in Esther's day that makes the difference? I want to make the case this evening that it is God's promises that make all the difference, that we can say, I can stand on every promise of your word. It's whether someone trusts that God's salvation plan is going to win out in the end, or if they think that Satan's plan to end that is going to succeed. It's whether you believe that God is going to keep his words or not. This evening, I want us to think about this. Can we be certain about picking a side in a world missing God? Is it simply a cross your fingers and hope? Is it something that only those really outgoing, bold people do? Or is it something we can trust God to do in Esther's day and in our own as well? So we need to remember the story of Esther because as we do that, we're going to see an amazing truth. And that truth is that God can be trusted to keep his promises. He's done it before and he will do it again. It's the same in Esther's day and the same in ours as well. Do you remember this whole situation has come up because of an ancient hatred? Do you remember Haman, his family line? He's from a line of snaky people. His family is defined in Esther as the family line of Agag. He's an Agagite. And we saw a while back, that's a connection back to the ancient serpent of Genesis chapter 3. But do you remember in Genesis 3, God made a promise. He made a promise that the seed of the serpent would be crushed. That's just one promise we see in the Bible story at play in Esther here. But as we read through the rest of Esther 9, the author's again and again going to remind us of promises that God has made in the past and how they're seen here in Susa and how they apply to the rest of the world. Just like an underground river, God might not be visible on the surface, he might be missing, but his promises, they sure are there. And that's the same today as well. So let's have a look, shall we, at the text. Have a look down at verses 1 to five, where we see promises that lead to a decisive victory. Promises that lead to a decisive victory. Now, as we came to the text, you might have been horrified at what's going on. I mean, this storyline 
It is horrific, isn't it? That's why we give films like The Purge an 18. But we need to see the specifics to really understand what's going on. If you were here last time, you'll remember I started to make the case that this isn't indiscriminate killing. In fact, I want you to know this evening, I want us to see that there are no innocent people harmed in the making of this story. Let's have a look down at verse 1. Let me show you. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edicts commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. Just notice, this is not a Jew versus Gentile story here. It is not that the victims are on a side just because they happen to be. No, throughout the whole of this story, this is God's people versus those who hate God's people. See there, on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. This battle, it's been on the kitchen calendar for a whole year. It's a premeditated attack. It was a planned attack. You notice that line right there, end of verse one. But now the tables were turned. Literally, it says it was turned around. We have the opposite happening here, complete reversal happening here to what everyone thought was going to happen. And right there in the first verse, we get the story of the rest of the chapter. The point being, any concern, any panic of which way things are going to go gets removed immediately. It is a certainty on what way this is going to go. As we'll see, because of God's promises. Verse two, what happened? Oh, well, the Jews assembled across the world to attack those who were going to destroy them. You see, this is all portrayed as a, a scene. It's all seen as self-defense. People are trying to kill them, kill or be killed. Yet, verse two, no one could stand against them. Do you remember Zeresh's words to her husband, Haman? She said, you'd be unable to stand against God's people because people were afraid of them. Just hold on to those phrases for a moment there. Uh, verse 3, uh, the nobles, the people in charge of the kingdom, they helped the Jews. Why? Well, because the fear of Mordecai has seized them. Same idea, verse 2, but now it's about Mordecai. Uh, verse 4, Mordecai's fame, it spreads from place to place. It became more and more powerful. So remember who Mordecai stands for here? So remember, he's wearing those team colours, isn't he? He's the representative of God's side. We're being told about his fame here. And that is why, verse 5, tying together the whole of this little section, the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. Do you see, God's people, they win a decisive victory over those who hate them. I mean, the point is simple, isn't it? Yeah, there's really some weird comments, weird details in the middle of this, aren't there? Uh, the author, they could have said what they meant quite easily without using the language of standing against or the fear stuff, or saying that Mordecai became famous. Why are those there? Well, as with the rest of Esther, beneath this story lies another one. There's another story behind this that the readers of Esther would have recognised quite clearly, and that is the story of Joshua. If you know the story of Joshua, he was the next leader after Moses. He was the one who saw God keep his promises to Moses. You could say the big point of the book of Joshua is that God saves his people to bring them into rest. God redeems, he saves his people to bring them into rest. Just look at this. As Joshua went into Canaan, 
we're told no one will be able to stand against you. In fact, that's the only other place that this phrase here in Esther is used in the whole Bible. As Joshua is leading the armies through the promised land, we're told the fear fell upon the people, just like here. And you're not going to be surprised to see this now. We're told that the Lord is with Joshua and his fame spreads throughout the land, just like Mordecai. God made a promise to his people throughout the whole Bible that he was going to fight with them. In Joshua, we see that fight clearly. And here in Esther, we see with those repeated phrases coming back that God is keeping his same promise to his people. And it's because of that that there's a decisive victory. Do you see the message there? God has done it before and God will do it again. And that is how, verses 6 to 16, we see how complete a victory this is. Verse 6, we're told that in the citadel of Susa, 500 men were killed. It's a big number, isn't it? But just clock there, just think about what is actually being said. In Susa, in the very city that this dramatic reversal has happened, in the very citadel where Haman's body is currently hanging, raised up for everyone to see, in the very place where the king's favour is visibly resting on Mordecai, still, some people think they can thwart God's promises. Do you see that? Even there in that city, with all that going on, people are so set on rebelling against God's plan that they then try and destroy God's people. I mean, when you think about it, it's ludicrous, isn't it? Until you think about today, people today still try and resist God's promises, don't they? This is not unexpected. Those people there, they included Haman's 10 interestingly named sons. I mean, that might strike us as a bit unfair. I reckon we probably stick the word innocent into that sentence in our minds. Haman's 10 innocent sons. I know that's how I read it. But just remember how the author here has portrayed this battle. It's all been a family thing. And the default allegiance of any of us is that of our family, isn't it? Blood is thicker than water, they say. The idea in Esther is not that these are 10 innocent men who had no choice in who their father was. Instead, these are 10 people amidst a whole swathe of people who hate God's people. And I want to make the case that the battle is extremely restrained. In fact, have a look how restrained it is. End of verse 10. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. That's in parallel, actually, with verse 2. In verse 2, that word we have for attack is the phrase, they lay their hands on. So do you see, the people, they lay their hands on their enemies but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. It's very specific what they're doing. This is restraint. In fact, we see it's even more restrained because this is the original decree, Esther 8, verse 11. They were allowed, end of that verse, to take the plunder, to plunder the property of their enemies. It was allowed, but they restrained themselves. And the reason why Mordecai had that statement there was because Haman originally had that statement there. Haman was planning to do that himself in the original decree. It would have been absolutely fine for them to take the people's plunder, but they didn't. Yeah, there's more going on here than that. Do you notice that phrase? It came up again and again. Verse 10, uh, verse 15, verse 16. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. The author wants us to notice that, to make a big deal of that. 
Guess which book of the Bible has that in it? Joshua. You see, in the book of Joshua, the people were commanded to not lay their hands on the plunder. That was their way of trusting God's promises or saying that God was their reward. They don't need anything else. That's Joshua chapter six. But right after that, Joshua chapter seven, a guy called Achan ignores that and his whole family face the consequences. And then you might remember this one, Samuel chapter 15, we find King Saul. The story of how King Saul lost his kingship came down to how well he trusted God. And it involved the plunder. You see, Saul was commanded to kill Agag, the enemy, and not take his plunder. But as Samuel walked towards the place where Saul was, he heard the bleating of the sheep, the lowing of the cattle, and he quickly found that Saul had spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. If that verse hadn't happened, the whole story of Esther would not have happened. Do you see that? See, Agag is the guy that we're told Haman is descended from. If Saul had done that at the time, sorted out what he should have done, Haman wouldn't have existed. Esther, the story wouldn't have happened. And do you remember who Mordecai is related to? Well, in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, now there in the city of Delosus was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. We're meant to realise that Mordecai is related to Saul. So in the second meeting of Saul versus Agag, the job is done right, and they did not take the plunder. And so the people, the point being, they're meant to be trusting. They are trusting in God's promises. And that is how they achieve a complete victory over Haman. That's what's going on in verses 12 to 16. Uh, Esther asked the king for a second day to finish the job. I mean, that might seem cold and cruel, but think about it in the terms we've just been talking about. Just think about the picture that the 10 sons of Haman are hung as well in public view like their dads. And still, verse 15, still another 300 people try and kill the Jews. Even though it has shown the day before to be useless to stand against God's promises, people are still trying. They still rise up and band together against the Lord and his people. But the point here is there is a complete victory over Haman. In fact, everything that he boasted of to his friends and his wife back in chapter five has been taken from him. As we enter this point, he has nothing left. It's a complete victory over Haman, over the snaky man. And so that leads us to the last three verses, which show us the promises that lead to rest. Just in case you're not fully on board with what I'm saying about this battle, do you see where the author puts the emphasis here? If this chapter was all about fighting, the people would celebrate the victory. But look carefully. That is not what they celebrate here. They don't celebrate the victory. They don't celebrate the war. They specifically celebrate rest. It's the day they rest. Verse 17, that's the 14th day for those outside of Susa. Or verse 18 is the 15th day for those in Susa. It is the rest after the fighting that is celebrated. Now, there's a lot of feasting Esther, isn't there? But here in verses 17 and 18, it's marked differently. It's feasting with gladness. It's feasting with joy. That's a phrase that remembers God's rescue. You only get these kind of feasts in the Bible after a great act of deliverance. 
we're going to share one tonight. And that's what this is here. They received relief from their enemies. The very thing that Haman wanted to squash back in chapter 3. They have unity as a people. They're giving gifts to each other to unite together. Exactly what Haman claimed was a threat to the king in chapter 3. In fact, they have rest, just as God promised he would ultimately give his people. I mean, no guesses, but they're turning up in the book of Joshua, eh? You'd be right. The goal, the celebration, the focus here is on rest. God keeping his promise to his people that leads to rest. So what is this passage calling us to do? What is the point of recalling the whole of the Joshua story in this one chapter of Esther? Oh, what difference does this actually make to the guy I was speaking about with his workplace? Well, the answer is this. We, just as Esther's people, can still be sure that God will keep his promises today. He kept them in Joshua's day. People of Esther can read that and know that. He kept them in Esther's day. We can read that and know that. And through the cross, we know he ultimately keeps his promise. Joshua is recorded as a story to show that the people of God live by the promise of God and that they always have. Or as Paul might say in the New Testament, God's people have always lived by faith, not by sight. The story of Esther is the same. Just like the purge, this storyline, yes, it is horrific. If God had not made his promises, there would have been a worldwide massacre of God's people. Salvation history would have been stopped in his tracks. There'd be no hope, no salvation, no gospel for anyone. But the big thing to see here is that God has made promises, even though he might appear missing. He's made promises to bring about a saviour from the Jewish people. He's made promises to destroy Satan once and for all and everyone who follows him. He's made promises of a new creation where there is nothing bad and nothing sad. He's made promises of rest. And so as we read this, we can be certain about following him now, in picking his side now, in living his way now. That might look like trusting in the sea of opposition, that God's way is right. That might look like standing for God in a world that thinks he's missing. Because God's promises are always there. They're always running under the ground. They're not ever going to be broken. God will always keep his promises in Susa, as we see here, and today, even against the odds. Thank you so much for listening. Any feedback or questions can be sent to podcast at david-couch.com and I'll catch you again next time.